It's Green and Growing with Ashley Frasca. Plants, flowers, trees, and stuff. On 95.5 WSB. And a good early Saturday morning to you. 58 degrees in Midtown Atlanta. Welcome to the show with you for the next three hours. And during those three hours... Uh, Britain will have a new king and queen. What an amazing day. 70 years later, after the coronation of Queen Elizabeth II, now we're able to, in our lifetime, experience another coronation, King Charles III and Queen Camilla. That is happening right now. So we're going to dip in and out of coverage as all eyes around the world are on the coronation of the king. And I'm sure your eyes are beginning to be diverted outside to things, pests, anything in the landscape or the garden that you have questions about. And that's why I am here with you. 404-872-0750 is the number. So got to thinking about uh, pests in the landscape and things to anticipate this summer, whether it's going to be Japanese beetles, um, any kind of beetle, eating on rose bushes, hedges, anything like that. Tomato hornworm, of course, you're going to want to watch out for. Mosquitoes, that's another one. Hopefully no infestations of major, major army worms as our lawns had a problem with last year. That was such a big deal last year. A lot of these things I was explaining to a garden group not too long ago are kind of cyclical. Some things, you know, if we had one really bad year with infestations of army worms and that just seemed to be the theme, maybe it won't be a problem for the next two to five, however many years. Then we kind of see it again if environmental conditions are right. What environmental conditions have been right for our ambrosia beetle. That's another one. As they started to, uh, they overwintered in wood piles and leaf debris, all that kind of thing. And then the beetle began boring into a lot of your trees about 40 to 50 days ago and started laying eggs and all of that. And then as they're boring in, you see the sawdust or toothpicks or any kind of little wooden protrusions, any way you describe it coming out of thin bark trees or trees that are stressed. That's really the cause of that. If you have ambrosia beetle infestations in figs and crepe myrtles and cherry trees, maples, that's nothing you did wrong. It's absolutely nothing you did wrong. Environmental conditions were were pretty stressful for a lot of our trees and shrubs. Uh, With the really hard freeze we had at Christmas time, And then we thought we were out of the woods. And then we had at least two freezes that I can recall in March as well. So a lot of those trees just became stressed. And believe it or not, the trees send out pheromones. They send out stress chemicals uh, in the environment. And this beetle is very opportunistic and takes advantage of that. So that is exactly what you're seeing. If you're seeing toothpicks out of the trunks of your trees, uh, that is ambrosia beetle. And it does take, I think once they bore in, it's about 40 to 55 days uh, that they tunnel and do little galleries in through the trunk and all that. It actually, if you take a cross section of the wood, it actually looks kind of neat uh, the way they kind of burrow in there and lay their eggs. And then those things are going to emerge. And then we have a whole new life cycle, a whole new generation of these things. Uh, but really, there is nothing to be done. Once it's so deep in the trunk, there is no chemical to spray. There is no treatment that can be done. A lot of those trees, unfortunately, are goners. Uh, so what you can do, and I've received so many pictures from listeners, if the infestation and the board holes are higher up on the tree, you've got to go beneath the last point of contact that you see and make a cut below where you see it. 
cut off the bad wood, remove it, burn it, because that is just going to contain a whole new family of beetles that'll overwinter in the landscape, and then we'll have this problem again next year. So burn it, destroy the wood that you remove. And hopefully with what's left, what what was below where they bored in, uh, hopefully that's enough of the plant left to where it could, you know, bounce back and rejuvenate a little bit. Crepe myrtles, I'm not so worried about. I know you love your crepe myrtles, and some of them you're going to have, you know, 10 to 20 foot tall crepe myrtles that you may have to start cutting uh, and that's going to break your heart. But they send out so many water sprouts or suckers at the ground that really you just let a couple of them grow and then take the sturdiest one and that will become a new tree. It's going to take a long time to get back to 10 feet tall or 20 feet tall. But uh, that guaranteed is almost, you know, going to be guaranteed for you to to come back. So some of the pests that we anticipate with the warmer weather, if the weather was to ever get warmer. Uh, just talking to a friend yesterday with the Bermuda lawn, it's not quite greened up yet. It has not been warm enough. So if the green up on your warm season lawn is a little slow, don't think you're the only one that is happening everywhere. And even the garden, you know, we planted our gardens three, four weeks ago and not much is happening. Uh, pepper plants are a little slow. Tomato plants aren't getting real tall yet. Uh, a lot of beans or any kind of seed that you put in the, the garden little slower to germinate than what you would think um, if you're waiting on bean seeds or eggplant or something like that. Uh, it says, oh, germination time is maybe seven to 10 days. Well, it's almost been double that because we just have not had any sustained warm temperature. So we'll get there. We'll get there. That's why we rely on uh, WSB meteorologist Christina Edwards just to lead the way and give us what to expect. And it is going to maybe be a little drizzly today and then a 40% chance for rain tomorrow. So that'll help the garden for sure. 404-872-0750 is the number. So April was National Gardening Month, which was kind of cool. I didn't do anything out of the ordinary with that. And now all of my colleagues that I'm so appreciative appreciative of that look out for me are sending me notes being like, hey, there's this thing now that it's May, no mo May. Have you heard of it? And I said, well, yes, I've heard of it. But thanks for the reminder because every month could have a theme and that's just something that's top of mind. Uh, No Mow May, Low Mow Spring, right? So this is a a campaign that began uh, somewhere, I don't know, maybe overseas. Uh, And then, oh yeah, No Mow May was first popularized by an organization in the United Kingdom, but gaining traction here. But basically the idea is to not mow your lawn, right? I mean, you want to attract pollinators to to the landscape, some of those flowering weeds, dandelions, and, um, oh, I don't know, uh, vetch and all of that that have little small purple flowers. A lot of those, you know, we, we do think is weeds, which are just plants growing in the wrong place, uh, but they'll attract pollinators. So the start of the growing season, it's a critical time for newly emerged native bees, right? So those floral resources with a lot of things slow to bloom are going to be hard to find, especially in suburban landscapes. But by allowing grass to grow a little bit taller, weeds to, to grow, flowers to bloom, that can help pollinators and bees thrive just a little bit. So I know you're rolling your eyes because a lot of your HOAs are not going to go for that. Uh, but there are really, really good groups if you want to learn a little bit more about pollinators and attracting them to your landscape. Bee City USA is one of those uh, that's a great resource and kind of what I'm looking at now. Lawns cover over 40 million acres or 2% of the land making it the single largest irrigated crop that we grow, uh, according to B-City USA. So, you know, if you just kind of let it go, uh, you're going to definitely need to make sure when you are ready to mow, you got some sharp mower blades and that thing's got some gas and some oil and you're going to be pushing through. Now, when you do mow, you know, there's this, uh, this argument, I guess, and maybe it is catching on. People are now on the right side of things 
when the grass is just a regular height and you're keeping up with mowing and, you know, it's about every six to eight days, depending on the landscape that you have, it's okay to not bag the clippings, right? We want those clippings. We want that grass to fall back into the soil because it contains a lot of nitrogen, great fertilizer for the soil. But when it does get to be super tall and you're a little bit behind, probably best to bag the clippings because you're going to have weed seed heads that will fall back in and create more weeds. Um, It's just going to be so thick if you're cutting off, you know, a decent amount of the blade of grass. It's going to be so thick uh, that that'll cause thatch and that'll just cause a lot of clogging there at the base of the blades where they meet the soil. And you don't want that. So a little is good uh, for letting those clippings go back in, but not a lot. So bagging, you know, you just kind of have to use your judgment on that. But free fertilizer, love that. And now might be a good time to apply some fertilizer to a lot of things around the landscape. Uh, The vegetable garden being one of them with some rain in the forecast, you know, go ahead and put that tomato tone or whatever garden fertilizer you use around the plants and uh, let that get rained in. And make sure to mark on the calendar the applications of fertilizer you do so that you don't run the risk of over-fertilizing anything. You're keeping track. You're following the recommended uh, amounts on the bag. Again, too much fertilizer can be just as bad for a plant as not feeding it at all. So we really want to be careful with that. But mark on the calendar. Keep track of when you're fertilizing. And, uh, you know, be efficient with it. So you don't have to water. You don't have to drag the, the garden hose out there. Go ahead and do it and let the rain work to your advantage. 404-872-0750. So coming up on the show, we're going to be talking about all the things to get into this weekend. And of course, the things you could be doing in the landscape that are timed just right for the first week of May. And also, a couple weeks ago, I got to visit with my friend Norm Mitleider, certified aesthetic pruner, Japanese maple expert. And throughout the summer, I'm going to be collecting all of your questions, anything you've ever asked about Japanese maples and doing a sit down with Norm and kind of firing your questions at him. There's so much to know about Japanese maples and hundreds of varieties. Uh, They have very funny behavior sometimes, their characteristics. I don't know everything there is to know about them. So usually I lean on an expert like Norm, but uh, I, I definitely got to discuss some things with him and some questions that you had asked prior to him visiting my home to do some aesthetic pruning to my blood good maple. And it looks so much better now. And there was a little spot we kind of had to leave alone because of the cardinals nesting in it. Uh, And I think that that family is just about ready to hatch and the little fledglings will be out soon. So we can pay a little more attention to that. Um, And holding back pruning Laura Pedlum, I'm holding back pruning my Chinese fringe bushes as well. And I am watching Mama Cardinal. They they build their nests about three to 10 feet off the ground. It could be... Um, And she is sitting on those eggs, and she's very protective when I go out the front door, kind of check on her, take a look. Uh, So I'm conscientious of that before I really start pruning that. She's going to need all of that material that's still on the bush, you know, to kind of shade herself, do a little protection from above. So she's kind of hidden in there. So keep that in mind as you go rustling about as well. All right, 404-872-0750, time to check traffic and weather. And we'll be right back with the top three things to do in the landscape. Good morning. It's Ashley Frasca on WSB. The weekend weather update brought to you by Finley Roofing. Scattered morning showers, cloudy through the afternoon. It's going to reach a high of 74. That's still kind of chilly to me. I have not been able to warm up the last few days, but a high of 82 tomorrow. Spotty showers, 30% chance for showers for most of us on Sunday. Green and Growing with Ashley Frasca. Here's your garden to-do list this week. All right, number one, spring flowering shrubs and vines. 
as needed to reduce the size. Now that they're finished blooming, you can prune them. That list would include quince, bridal wreath, forsythia, azaleas, Carolina jessamine, if that needs to be trimmed up a little bit, wisteria, and ladybanks roses. Uh, speaking of privet, well, bridal, bridal wreath is what I said, but it, it looks somewhat like privet uh, from a distance. A lot of people are seeing privet looks really nice right now. Um, people are like, wow, what is that with the cascading white flowers kind of hanging by the roadside? It looks so pretty. It smells nice. I was funny. The retired uh, Channel 2 meteorologist Glenn Burns posted a picture not too long ago. He's like, wow, this is pretty. What is this? People are like freaking out. They're like, oh, my gosh, it's privet. You don't want privet. It's highly invasive. Spreads by seed. Uh, I'm going to be posting a picture of that maybe during the show, maybe after the show on the Facebook page. When you search Facebook for Green and Growing WSB, when you go to my page and go to photos, I have albums. And one of the albums you need to know this time of year is Highway Horticulture. So privet is going to be one of those things in the photo album that you can identify and I tell you a little bit about it, and you'll be like, oh, yeah, so that's what that is. So, sorry, bridal wreath made me think of that. Uh, number two, non-grassy weeds in the lawns can be controlled with broadleaf weed killer, something that contains 2,4-D as the active ingredient. Read and follow the label directions to avoid damage, though, to desirable plants in the same area. As with any herbicide, you've got to be careful. You have to read the label. Uh, number three, look out for some oddities in your oaks. I was camping last weekend, noticed oak shot hole leaf miner. Uh, that's a fly that cut holes into oak leaves that you may see now as they fall and the leaf unfurled. There's holes. It's like somebody took a hole punch along the vein of the leaf. Very weird. Uh, not going to be a big deal, though. And then wool sour gall. White, fuzzy little balls hanging on affected oak trees. And if you look up close, maybe it's about the size of a golf ball, maybe a little smaller. And then it has little pink dots in there. Uh, no need for any treatment. That is just a wasp in the way he's living, just hanging out in some oak trees. Uh, but those look kind of cool. If you and the kids are out in the yard or going on a hike or anything like that, you may very well see wool, sour, gall on some of your oak trees. Uh, 404-872-0750. So what we're looking at across the pond uh, in England this morning is the coronation of King Charles III and Queen Camilla. And I've done a little bit of research on the flowers and the spreads and the things you're going to see and the traditions uh, of their country that are going to be so on full display and are right now, as a matter of fact, at Westminster Abbey, where the ceremony is taking place. Uh, the pinnacle of the ceremony, which we will be following in the next hour or less, will be the crowning moment with gun salutes to mark the occasion and welcome a new monarch for the first time in 70 years. And five main elements, which we're kind of following along with this morning, and we may bring you parts of that, the recognition, the oath, the anointing, the crowning, and then the enthronement of the king and the queen. And then during the recognition, we're going to kind of watch for King Charles to show himself to the people at all four directions, north, south, east, and west, as he makes a declaration to all of the people. And the new sovereign has to take three oaths, actually. There's the Scottish, the accession declaration oath, and the coronation oath. So this is just a a timed process that is so fascinating to watch this morning. And we would be remiss if we didn't at least... Uh, follow that along and, and really kind of tip our hats to the historical homage and the pomp and circumstance of all of this going on. It's really interesting. Maybe the, the only one that you will see in a lifetime, a coronation of a new monarch across the pond. And I will bring you some really interesting information that gardeners care about when we come back. And your calls, as always, can't wait to hear from you. 404-872-0750. Be right back.
Growing with Ashley Frasca. Plants, flowers, trees, and stuff. On 95.5 WSB. So you've got an ear on the radio, which I'm so grateful for. Here with you until 9 o'clock, hosting Green and Growing Atlanta's only garden show. But then maybe you have an eye on the television across the room, right, for the coronation of King Charles. First coronation of a British monarch in 70 years. Queen Elizabeth II was coronated on June 2nd, 1953. Seven years or 70 years, one month shy, you know, give or take. Uh, But amazing, the tradition and everything. So from a gardening aspect, I think we care because there's a lot of things that we'll recognize. Uh, Later on, when you look at photographs and back with the video inside Westminster Abbey, where all of this is taking place, you'll see today 30 varieties of tulip, crab apples, azaleas, rhododendrons, all things we recognize Hellebores, which have special meaning to King Charles, and cuttings of branches from trees that were planted by Queen Elizabeth II and Prince Philip as they loved the outdoors as well and had so much beautiful property there. Uh, Cuttings of beech trees, for example, planted by the Queen in 1978 to mark the opening of the Arboretum and a first planting at Wisley Gardens. Uh, The Royal Horticultural Society, really something to follow on social media if you don't already. If you see RHS, that's what that is, the Royal Horticultural Society, uh, providing flowers and foliage that adorn the high altar at Westminster Abbey. And the five RHS gardens, many of you have probably been there to visit, Hyde Hall, Bridgewater, Harlow Carr, uh, Rosemore, and Wisley, and uh, Wednesday, Plants from all over the United Kingdom, the four kingdoms being England, Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland, they were all brought to Westminster Abbey just days ago. Shane Connolly is the royal florist and the floral designer to the coronation, and we can hear a little bit more from him now. The RHS is very kindly giving wonderful branches of things to use in Westminster Abbey for the coronation of the king. The king's passion is gardening and nature. So in effect, it's a tribute from the gardeners of England, represented by the RHS, of what is in the gardens and looking good at the moment. I had this idea that everything that was used at the coronation should come from Britain and it should be gifted from the gardeners and the growers. So flowers from the farm are gifting beautiful flowers for two areas and the RHS is gifting beautiful things for the high altar. Being asked to provide the floral material for the coronation of the monarch is a huge privilege. I mean, it's a once in a lifetime opportunity for the organization and for all of the individuals that are involved. So everybody in the garden teams across the RHS's five gardens are super excited and super supportive of being involved in a very small way in something that's so monumental and historic for the country. Because we're so far north, it's it's quite special to be involved in sending the foliage to the coronation. To have something from Yorkshire in the Abbey, it feels quite special. Honestly, I'm just so delighted that two bits of material coming from Hyde Hall is going to be used as part of the coronation. I suppose it's another added bonus to try and pick out the plants that we've supplied. So I think it'd be really interesting to see. It's just a really great representation of all the RHS coming together to gift such lovely plants for the King's coronation. Everything we're doing, the main drive is sustainability and the least footprint on the planet. And to show that something as important 
as the coronation of the king can also be thought for. Everything is arranged in water, so they're cut, they're put in buckets of water, we arrange them into more water, that no microplastic of, of floral foam is involved. We are going to be cutting some branches of beech trees that were planted by the late Queen and the late Duke of Edinburgh. Um, and I think that's, it's lovely that continuity that they came here, they planted something which will then supply a few nice branches for the coronation of, of the King. People can come and see the RHS gardens, they can see where things were cut, they can look at what we've done in the Abbey and say, I'd like to grow that. And I think that's really important. It's, it's simple and thoughtful. So that's how inspired gardening begins. You know, we do the same thing. It's it's funny to imagine the King of England gardening just the way we do. Uh, I look like a mess when I'm out in the yard, but there is nowhere I would rather be on the days I have a chance to be out in the yard. So we heard from Shane Connolly there, royal florist and floral designer to the coronation. Boy, I bet he is going to sleep very well tonight, uh, as well as the managers of the five Royal Horticultural Society Gardens uh, around the United Kingdom. So all of the flowers and the branches used after today are donated to Floral Angels, and that's a charity of which the Queen is a patron. They're reused in bouquets to send to care homes, shelters, hospitals, and other members of the local community. And two tall yew topiaries at the door will later be replanted uh, at one of the palaces to grow into a permanent tribute to the coronation. And sustainability, as you heard him mention, they're reflected in other coronation decisions as well. The invitations, maybe you saw them online, pretty fancy recycled paper uh, to Queen Camilla wearing a crown from the royal vault instead of a new commission, trying to be a little thoughtful of the economic situation there in Britain. And uh, the Princess of Wales, who I just absolutely adore, Kate Middleton, in a floral crown, and that kind of sets a tone uh, showing King Charles's passion and reverence for nature and passion for flowers as well. Uh, wearing a tiara these days, maybe not as commonplace as had been with uh, former generations. 404-872-0750, a pretty monumental day here on uh in, in the States, but also across the pond as well. And on Green and Growing, really uh, honored that uh, they were five hours ahead of us. Eastern Standard Time, obviously, here is 6.42. So uh, five hours ahead in the 11 o'clock, almost noon hour there at Westminster Abbey. But of course, talking local gardening as well. And just a reminder to many of you, uh, Mother's Day, don't get uh, caught unawares. Not this Sunday. You have one more week. Whether or not mom's a gardener, so many great ideas and things for the family that could be used outdoors. Of course, you can get her any of the tools necessary for working in the garden from cute shovels and pruners, uh, gloves of all sizes. Every gardener needs a couple of good pairs of garden gloves as well as the tall ones that go all the way up to your elbow in case working around poison ivy or roses or anything of that nature. And uh, some insecticidal soaps, maybe, you know, just something, uh, a good herbicide, something organic to use in the landscape that may work on a lot of pests. Rooting hormone, uh, if you want to take part with mom propagating some new plants and things like that. Or if she is just beside herself with rabbit and deer and all of that kind of thing, perhaps some repellents. A good garden apron, a good garden bag. Uh, something that I'm going to share, a, a video that I made two years ago, a hose link. If you've never heard of hose link, and that is a dreaded task or something that mom may have you do, go out and water the garden. Hose link makes it very, very easy 
uh, to do that and to store the hose. So that's kind of a fun video I made a couple of years back. Uh, we were still in COVID. Like I had time to traipse about the backyard and, and make videos of things. Um, any ideas like that, a composter, a gift card, of course, if mom enjoys being outside. And, you know, if you're going to buy plants, maybe roses or camellias or something that's going to stay in the landscape for a long time, buying those for mom for Mother's Day and then being a part of the placement and the planting of those in the yard, too. That way you get to spend some time together and maybe bring along uh, some sweet tea or some lunch to make that uh, pretty, you know, an enjoyable experience for mom and something that'll last in the landscape for quite some time. 404 We'll go to the phones just before 7 a.m., about 15 minutes until the top of the hour. Talk to Gary calling from Locust Grove. Hey, Gary, welcome to the show. So um, I've lived here in, o- in Locust Grove since 2006. It was a new house that had Bermuda grass in the front yard and the backyard. And my backyard has so little sunlight that, uh, anyway, long story short, uh, it's now a dust bowl. I have hardly any grass. So I ordered zoysia grass for my backyard, Xena, I think it is. And and they're going to deliver it in a week. My question is, how often do I initially water it for the first, let's say, four weeks? That's really smart. So Zenith zoysia is one of the more shade-tolerant um, though still needs full sun. You know, any of those warm season grasses like Bermuda, centipede, zoysia all really do need uh, full sun. But the more sun it can get, the better. Um, that's a very smart question and, and wanting to make sure you, you water it correctly. Generally, established lawns, you're looking at one inch per week if no rainfall. Um, but for that establishment, I would stick around that to an inch and a half um, only because, you know, it, it does need to get established and... Uh, and it, a little more than an inch is going to keep the lawn wet to where as long as that can stay moist in a consistent moisture level, that helps the roots establish a lot more quickly. So you don't want it to dry out um, in the first few weeks as it's trying to establish. You don't want it to have any kind of stress. But I don't think much more than an inch and a half because you're not competing with the heat, right? Generally, if you lay sod in the heat of summer, um, you really have to deal with some heat stress, but that's not really a factor right now. So no more than an inch and a half per week. So so I have a watering system, and uh, the guy who sprays my lawn said I should water it, and it does what he told me, 15 minutes at 5 in the morning for two weeks, and then after that, three uh Three, uh, anyway, is that is it? Does that sound right with a watering system? I mean, it, I de- know, I- it depends on the calibrations and all of that. Um, I'm one that puts out the sprinkler and and kind of just know just the right timing. But what I would do is, you know, get some kind of gauge and make sure that wherever your systems and your heads are for the system, um, mm-hmm. put put gauges out and just see how long it takes them to collect an inch of water. Um, it really depends on the spacing and all of that. So I can't say 15 minutes guaranteed. He may know the intricacies of your system. Um, mm-hmm. So I would probably lean toward trusting that. But the best way to know is to put out some gauges across the, the lawn and watch them and time them. That way you're being, you know, most efficient with the watering and not wasting any. And, and you say an inch and a half a week? Yeah, in the beginning. In the beginning, if no rainfall. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, and again, a, a, a rain gauge or something to monitor, you know, how much we are getting. That way, you, oh, you can slack off one week, you know. Where, where do you get these rain gauges? Home Depot? Oh, anywhere. Yeah, nurseries, any of that. Mm-hmm. And so I need more than one? 
Yeah, when you're trying to figure out an irrigation system, um, if it's new to you or if it's someone that hadn't been used in a while or something like that, I would put multiple around the landscape. I mean, you could maybe do three or four, get away with three or four, depending on the size of the lawn. An average lawn uh, could mm-hmm. do three or four. And yeah, see what drops in those gauges You, you know, well, within a matter of time. Well, I'm getting five pallets, so oh, does, gosh. That tell you, is, is, does that tell you anything? Yeah, yeah, that's that's a good bit. And make sure, you know, the, the company that's installing it, of course, is going to be very conscientious of uh, roughing up that soil really, really well, making sure that soil, you know, surface is going to be uh, conducive to the sod, being able to establish and get new roots and all that, no compaction or anything like that. Do I need a compost? That's it depends. I've been here since 2006, and as I say, I used to have Bermuda grass in the backyard, but it's all gone just about. Have you ever had a soil test done? No. That is something to consider, though now it may be uh, a little late since the sod is already on its way. Uh, but a soil test, any of us homeowners, I've been in the, the house uh, 12 years, and I've had one done. And depending on your uses or your purposes, you may need to have more than one done. Uh, For lawns, they recommend maybe just every two or three years. But once you kind of get a feel for a good grass and a a lawn and a turf that that takes, then it's not necessary to do it super often. Um, But a soil test would really tell you what is nutrient deficient in the soil and what you can add more of. So compost is never going to hurt. Compost, just good organic matter, is going to be good for the soil. If you have the money and the means to do it, I would absolutely just kind of lay it in, just lightly mix it in the top layer of surf, uh, this top surface of the soil. Um, but without knowing, you know, what the nutritious value is of the soil already, we'd want to get to the bottom of why did the Bermuda not survive, you know, to make sure we're going to give the zoysia the best chance possible with the sun and the nutrients it needs. So a soil test might be a good idea. And Gary, hang tight for me. When we come back, I'll kind of walk through for folks who've never had a soil test done. Um, I know it sounds like, oh, I don't have to get a soil test, but it's easier than you think. And it's going to save you a lot of time and money in the long run. So we'll talk about that right right away when we come back. You're listening to Green and Growing on WSB. All right. Loved Gary's question about installing new uh, zoysia sod. We want to do it right. We want to make sure our investment stays put for a long, long time. So uh, without really knowing what the soil is lacking, what it needs, a soil test is recommended. That is done by the University of Georgia. They're agricultural and environmental services laboratories. They test for all kinds of cool things. Um, Water analysis, plant tissue, uh, feed and forage for folks that have, uh, you know, livestock and all of that kind of thing. But say just for you and I, we want a soil test. Well, it's going to cost you 20 bucks. uh, But think of the time and money you'll save in the long run. That is well worth it. So you get a little brown bag that they have. Uh, You get that from your county extension office. Little brown bag. It looks like so small. Really, all you're giving them is about a pint of soil. Um, But the way you do that and the way you collect a sample is really, really important. So you're going to sample from the area where you're putting the grass or the area where you want to install a vegetable garden or something like that. So within that area, you probably want to kind of zigzag. Take eight to ten soil samples. So you kind of just dig a little trowel in the ground, maybe a one-inch little slice, and you want to go down four inches at least. And sometimes there's a measurement on your trowel on the shovel blade. Uh, you want to go down four inches if you're doing a soil test for lawns. For ornamentals and things, six inches. Those need a little bit deeper root system than a lawn. So only four inches for a lawn. Uh, sampling probably done best in the spring. 
but there's always time to do it. University of Georgia Lab is always accepting those. Make sure all of the tools you're using are clean as well so there's no contamination. You take eight to 10 of those samples, mix them up in a bucket. That's going to be a lot of dirt, dry dirt. Mix it up in a bucket. You're just going to use a pint of that to put in that little brown bag. Carry that right back to your extension office and they mail it away for you. They do the lab, they get the results and email you the test results. And it's so cool. Tells you exactly what you're lacking, exactly what you need. And then you go to the store and say, I need more of this. I need more of this. The fertilizers or nutrients or whatever is lacking. It's very straightforward for homeowners. So $20 well spent. Starting hour number two in just a short while, 404-872-0750.